Thank you, Tim. Good morning. It's always wonderful to be here on a Sunday morning. I appreciate those that are still here, not on vacation. And uh, So the first half of the year, we've been going through the book of Genesis. And uh, I want to take us back for a minute just to remember we, where we started. We had the first 12 books. And as Scott pointed out, we spent a lot of time on those first, I'm sorry, first 12 chapters. We spent a lot of time on those first 12 chapters. And then we took off like a sonic jet through the last three quarters of the book. But it's been a wonderful journey because we're going to conclude that, we're going to conclude Genesis this morning and I just want to take a minute to review some of the events and some of the things that happened because it's all pointing up to to something important, something we should all be aware of. Because God is a remarkable God. He really is. Because in this journey, we also find ourselves traveling across many lands with many different people that are synonymous with betrayal and faithfulness and patience and obedience and loyalty and deceitfulness and love. And as Eric said, jacked upness. Because the book opens with creation. And in that, we see all that we can see and feel and hear and touch and taste. And he put a garden. And in that garden, he placed Adam and Eve. And he told them, of all the trees of the garden they may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil they may not eat of it, unless, or if they did, they would die. You know, one of the other trees that they put out in the garden, that God put in the garden, was the tree of life. But then along came this, that, that, that cunning creature, the serpent of old, the devil himself, who talked to Eve, and when she had looked at that fruit, she took and ate of it and gave it to her husband, and zing! Into the world came sin and death. And out of this, the very first prophecy was spoken. Are you on the presentation? There we go. And into this, the very first prophecy was spoken. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then the Lord took the tree of life out of the garden. And he guarded it. Then we had the first siblings. You know, those first siblings, their relationship ended with death. And generation after generation passed and people died again and again and again except for one man, Enoch. And finally, the corruption of man's heart was so bad that God decided he was going to destroy the whole world, saving eight souls. Eight souls were saved, and it was left up to Noah to repopulate the earth with his sons. And all of that took place in the first 12 chapters of the Bible, in the first quarter of the book of Genesis. But the Lord was watching, and the Lord was waiting. Out of the land of Ur, God called Abram, and he would be the father of a great nation. And that father of a great nation is what we've been calling a dysfunctional family, a dysfunctional family tree. Because from his seed, all the nations of the earth were to be blessed. And Abraham traveled extensively all throughout, just like his son Isaac. They dwelt in tents in the land of Canaan. They were sojourners. They were foreigners living in tents. Isaac's son, Jacob, you can see some of Jacob's travels here. He traveled all the way up to 
uh, Padan Aram to escape his brother Esau, this dysfunctional family. And there he met Rachel, and the dysfunctional family becomes even more dysfunctional when Uncle Laban tricks Jacob into marrying uh, Leah rather than Rachel. And so for, for the love that he had for her, he worked another 14 years so that he could marry Rachel. Jacob departs for Padan Aran, and, and you start to see the beginning of this tribe. He's got 12 sons. And looking back on his life, Jacob described his days as few and evil. And he calls his life a pilgrimage, a sojourn, a traveling. Peter called his readers sojourners and pilgrims who should abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Paul told the Philippians that our citizenship is not on earth, but is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we as Christians should be living our lives. And within this dysfunctional family is probably the saddest relationship of all. You see the sons of Jacob, they hate their brother Joseph. They hate him to the point of death. But when they had an opportunity, they ended up selling him, figuring they can carry money more than they can carry the, it's worth more than the life of their brother. So he ends up being a slave in Egypt and he's working for Potiphar. They fully expected him to die there. And while he was in Egypt, he went from the best at Potiphar's house to the worst prison in all of Egypt. And then while he was in prison, Joseph, he took, he took a stand. He was a man of integrity, a man who could be trusted. And in the most dramatic and drastic transformations, I think, in all of the Bible, you have this, this person in prison put as the second in command over all of the land. When, when Jacob described or heard about his son, he said, he's governor of all of the land, save for Pharaoh. So when his brothers finally see him alive, they're, well... Very, very unusual because they didn't know what to do. At any rate, Jacob and his family end up moving to Egypt. The whole lot of them move to Egypt and they live in prominence there. And after blessing his children on his deathbed, Jacob, who's also called Israel, passes away. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 49. We'll read the last verse there and the first couple of verses in chapter 50 again. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many days are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. What followed is Jacob's funeral. They went and they buried him in the, in the, in the land of Canaan. You know, every one of those patriarchs had something in common. They all died without seeing the fulfillment of the hope which God put before them. Yesterday was June 29th, and it's often called the day that the Apostle Paul was martyred in Rome. There are many different accounts of what happened. Most of them all agree that, uh, that Nero 
was upset with the Christians in 64 AD and for the fire that was in Rome. And so therefore, he had Paul beheaded. And legend has it that his body was buried in the land of, the, of a Christian woman who owned land at that time. And this is the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls, which was built in 1800. And it's the supposed place where Paul's body is buried. A burial, a cremation, or some other handling of the body after death is, a, is one of the most widespread of all human institutions. It dates from the very beginning of, even, of civilization. Some might even say it dates even before civilization began. How the body is handled is important. We all know this intuitively. In, in December 2011, the, the news broke that the incinerated remains of 274 American soldiers were just dumped in a Virginia landfill and the public reacted in outrage over the handling of the ashes. How could that be? And so it has been throughout history. How you treat the body of a dead person is very much telling of what you think of that person. The pharaohs in Egypt were embalmed and they built huge pyramids. They built these huge pyramids as tombs for their kings. The message, our kings are great. They're awesome in life. They're awesome in death. And we will remember them forever. In the Iliad, the Greek hero Achilles kills the Trojan Hector and fastens his dead body to, the, to, the, to his chariot and drags it through the dirt in full view of all the other Trojans. Message, we hold you and your city and your warriors in contempt. We will burn your city to the ground. The United States Navy buried the body of Osama bin Laden at sea just hours after his death. Message, this is over. This guy is finished. The discussion is done. Every society, every religion has its own particular practices, some varying greatly, but all designed to convey a sense of passing and closure. It's both a very public and a very private thing. And often when I think about funerals and burials, I think about Jesus. Everything about the Lord Jesus compels our attention. Everything. It should be of great interest to us. And so, likewise, the burial and the tomb of Jesus should compel us to consider it and think, think about it. It tells us a lot of what God the Father thought of Jesus. Just as the funeral and the burial of Jacob showed what was thought of him. You know, we can be so familiar with the accounts in the Bible and, and with Jesus' death. So, and we rightly hold them in reverence but we seem to kind of hold them at arm's length because if I can say this right, a lot of what we do in our study and time in the Word, we lose our connection with real people because I know people who have, who have died, and I know you too, know people that have died long before their time. Maybe they had a long illness. I, I, two weeks ago, I was at a wake of a, of a, of a man who died at 40 years old a wife and two children after two years of cancer, of fighting cancer. In such a situation, 
You know, you have time to grieve. You, you, you have time to share your sorrows. You prepare yourself. You're ready themselves. Death is expected. Then it's accepted. And finally, it can even be welcomed. Joseph, he fell on his father's face and wept over him. But when someone dies suddenly, when someone dies tragically, violently, especially when it looks like there's no justice in this world, especially when it seems like there's nothing right in this world and there never will be, there's no time to emotionally prepare. There's no time and, and grief just kind of comes in waves. And so it was for the women and men around Jesus. Because you and I, we see things prophetically. We, we, we see purpose and we understand doctrinally that this had to happen. And yes, we can say that Jesus told his disciples that this was going to happen. But when it all came, it was so sudden. It was so overwhelming. We all respond to grief differently. And in speaking on broad demographic terms, men and women respond differently to grief. You see this in the Lord's burial and his resurrection. The women express grief in an outpouring of care and being together. In an open manifestation of sorrow, they prepared spices for the body. They went together to the tomb. The men, they spread out. They went differently into different directions. They went, to, they went fishing. Some of the men even went to Emmaus. They distract themselves. Let's, let's return to our narrative because there's more going on here that I want to get to. Let's turn, we'll pick it up in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of your servants, the father of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I want you to think back 23 years. How old were you 23 years ago? Were you even alive 23 years ago? What color was your hair 23 years ago? Did you have hair 23? No, no offense. Did you have hair 23 years ago? You see, for 23 years, Joseph's brothers had held a secret. They held a secret. For 23 years, there was this unspoken tension between them and their father. One that kept them at arm's length. One that kept almost a chasm between they and their father. I imagine 
that these brothers had many arguments, many arguments among themselves, debating, going back and forth about coming clean with their father. Should we, should we not? Will he forgive us? Will the news will cause him to die? I can't stand the deception and the lie. We have to tell him. They're going back and forth. What good does it tell, do to tell him now? If we tell dad, he's going to disinherit all of us and Benjamin will get everything. Back and forth, round and round they go, struggling each one individually and together. How could they bear it? For 23 years, this secret was running around in their mind, destroying their relationships with one another and with their father. The emotions they have felt when they first learned that Joseph was alive, it must have been overwhelming. It must have been confusing. It must have been startling, terrifying all at once. Here was their brother who they had sold and presumed to be dead, and now he had the power to kill them all. But Joseph didn't at that time because he was in love with his father. He wanted to see his father one more time. And I ask myself, is there some own guilt in my own life that I'm carrying around with me? Perhaps the other person doesn't even know it. Is there some unconfessed sin or, or, or sin that hinders my relationship with those close to me? Have I withdrawn from those that love me? Am I relying on some facade to shield the truth? Sin has a way of working into your relationships and destroying your life. For 23 years, the brothers kept from their father the truth. James writes that we are to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And the beauty of this truth is, is that it, it reveals the great grace of God. Because we as Christians are to live out our interactions with others just as Christ did for us in love and grace. And if you want to see where a person is in Christ, watch how they forgive if you want to learn whether a person's relationship with Jesus is genuine, observe how they show love and grace in the most difficult of circumstances. I'll admit, it's not easy to forgive. And if you are having a hard time forgiving somebody, I recently read Alcoholics Anonymous, and Bill W. says, and he comes up with a suggestion that comes right out of James. He says, spend every day praying for that individual. Spend time every day praying for that individual. Try it because I found this to be a great way to impact my life in the way that I see people. You know, Paul often pointed out to point it to how much he was forgiven by both Christ and those he persecuted. Paul pointed that out. And then remember the dying words of Stephen. As Paul stood there and the people were stoning Stephen, Stephen prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Notice how deceitful and manipulative the brothers of Joseph are. Because we have no indication that Joseph was looking to exact revenge on his brothers after his father died. Quite the contrary. Consider what Joseph did. He moves them to Egypt. He puts them in a place and treats them with love and respect. 
the best of the land. But the brothers have this mindset of karma in mind. You know that what goes around comes around. And if you think that way, then you're not thinking like the Lord because God operates on a completely higher plane. Because if you don't believe it, then spend some time thinking about grace. Think about God's grace. Think about his mercy. Meditate on 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'm sure, I'm sure many of you can think back to a time in your life when you wanted so desperately to be forgiven, but you didn't believe you could be. You may have gone so far as to behave out of character because of that thought, because of those thought processes, trying to placate the situation. You may have been dishonest. You may have been deceitful. You may have tried to manipulate the circumstances to better position yourself. I love how Joseph responds because you see... The brothers first, they send a message. They don't even go themselves. And then they lie and act like it was their father's dying wish for Joseph to forgive them. And in that dialogue, when the brothers enter the scene, their their statement is extremely telling of their heart. They say, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Notice they draw on Joseph's love for his father, and they say it's the God of your father. It's not even the God of our father. He says it's your father. And then they call themselves servants. But Joseph sees right through the facade, and he breaks down in tears. He breaks down in tears when this happens. The brothers come in and fall before Joseph and say, we are your servants. And once again, Joseph cuts right to the heart and he points, puts them in their place. He says, do not fear for am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? You shouldn't be my servants. If you're going to bow down to anybody, you bow down to God, not to me. Joseph has no desire to take the position of God. He has no right to lord over them what they did to him years ago. Better yet, Joseph understood the purposes and heart of God and what grace is and what mercy is. He understood that. But those who are bitter about what others have done to them and they don't choose to truly forgive and forget, I pity them. Because Joseph was not like that. He demonstrated no desire to repay them for the ill will towards them. Rather, he blesses them. He blesses them abundantly with what he has available. And Joseph weeps for them. He could see past the intentions of their hearts, beyond the depths of their sin to the grace of God. And I ask myself, am I I forgiving unconditionally? Or have I been bitter or resentful or, or harboring feelings of anger towards others. When I say I forgive someone, am I willing to forget it? Oftentimes people say I forgive you, but they don't forget it. Have I truly laid it at the feet of Jesus and been willing to allow this person to harm me again and again, just like the Lord allows me with him and the things that I do? Do I demonstrate the love of Christ when I am hurt? Or do I store up those wrongs? And bring them out again at an opportune time. Just like when Jacob dies, the brothers feared that Joseph wasn't going to want them around anymore. Have I committed myself to love and grace? 
Or am I just waiting for a time of revenge? Look deep down into your heart and ask yourself those questions. Ask yourself. Lay those thoughts before the feet of Jesus. Face to face with him. Debate. Put those arguments and try to justify it. Perhaps the most famous verse in this chapter is verse 20. Joseph is speaking to his brothers and he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Interesting. Remember early on uh, in one of the other messages, Eric pointed out that God uses messy people to accomplish his work. He, he used some really messed up brothers to accomplish his work. And even greater, God uses messy people to accomplish our salvation. And we can apply this just as Peter did in Acts to the Lord Jesus. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up. And denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. And you killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The men of Israel, they meant evil against Jesus, but God meant it for good. And from that evil, God wrought the salvation of the world. Amen, indeed. And then the book of Genesis concludes with the death of Joseph. It says, in, starting in verse 22, So Joseph remained in Egypt in his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Over and over again, we've been reminded to look and see who was this book originally written to. These were written to this book was written to the Israelites after they had come out of Egypt, and they, they had with them a coffin of bones. And they're learning, these are the bones of Joseph. This is what Joseph did for us. So I want to take a few minutes now, our last few minutes, and turn our attention to those bones. The bones in that box. Because Joseph believed to his core something that is littered throughout the book of Genesis. You know, all through the series, our key verse has been Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What's the greatest weapon that sin has? Death. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, humans have battled against death time and time again. About 150,000 people die every day. That's the seed of the serpent. That's its head. 
Women, on the other hand, give birth to sustain life on earth at a rate of about 360,000 births per day. So it's a almost double of what the rate of death is. But what's the real underlying prophecy here in Genesis 3.15? What motivated Joseph's words at the end of his life when he asked for his bones to be carried out of Egypt when they left? Paul, when he got to Rome, said, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak to you since because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing these chains. What is the hope of Israel? In Acts 23, there's a division in the council because of the hope of Israel. And I'm going to deviate from my notes here a little bit, but you see, the Sadducees, they're a, a group of people, and they said there is no resurrection, there is no angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees would confess both. You see, in other words, the Sadducees were ancient materialists. They were people who would say there is no heaven, there is no hell, there is no afterlife, there is no soul, there is no immortal spirit. This is it. This is all that we have. Religion is not necessarily a bad thing. It keeps you grounded. It gives us a sense of community. It's a way to teach ethics, but we really don't have to take it too far. Or if you want to dress it in 20th century clothes. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. And when you think about it, people with that mindset that they just live for today it starts to give you a, a, a real insight into what, what their life is like, what they're missing out on. That's not what Joseph did. That's not how Joseph lived. Joseph lived with an eternal perspective. He knew that there was hope. He knew that there was a hope of Israel that would one day come and die and be raised again. The resurrection is what Joseph hoped for. He looked for that. And beyond that, remember, when Jesus was debating with the Sadducees, I, had, I, I got that here somewhere. When he was debating with the Sadducees, he answered and told them, he said, they don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. For God is not the God of the living, but the God of the, not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And then he says something very unique. He makes sure that they know that angels are real and heaven is real and the resurrection is real. And people can imagine anything they want but imagination does not make it true and if I have a choice between trusting the words of Jesus or trusting your imagination well, respectfully respectfully it's not a very difficult decision to make we all have to choose how we will live and what will drive the decisions in our lives the, 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 the Sadducees, they like to look to what is here and now. People all over 
the world like to look and see what is here and now, what they can feel, what they can touch, what they can see. Not Joseph, and I trust not, not us either. We look to the hope of Israel, the resurrection. One of the greatest public servants in the history of England was this man here, William, William Gladstone. You know, he served as a prime minister for four terms uh, during the latter half of the 19th century. Shortly before he died, he was visited by an ambitious young man. This young man came to him and he sat across the table from the desk from uh, William Gladstone and he, he admired him more than anybody else. And he sought his advice concerning his career. So Gladstone asked, what do you hope to do when you graduate from college? The young man replied, I hope to attend law school, sir, just as you did. That's a noble goal, Gladstone re replied. Then what? I hope to practice law and make a good name for myself, defending the, the poor and the outcasts of society, just as you did, Mr. Gladstone. Well, that's a noble purpose. Then what? Well, sir, I hope to one day stand before Parliament and become a servant of the people, even as you did. That, too, is a noble hope. What then? asked Gladstone. I hope to be able to serve in the Parliament with a great distinction, evidencing integrity and a concern for justice, even as you did, Mr. Gladstone. What then? Well, I, I would hope to serve the government as prime minister, just as you, sir, with the same vigor and dedication, integrity and vision as you did. And what then? Asked Gladstone. Well, I, I, I hope to retire and retire with honors. Maybe I'll write some memoirs. I'll write some memoirs just as you're presently doing. And, and I want to give people an opportunity to learn from my mistakes and my triumphs just as you did. Gladstone looked at the young man and he said, all of that is very noble. And then what? The young man thought for a moment. The young man thought for a moment and said, well, sir, I suppose I'll die. That's correct, said Gladstone. And then what? The young man looked puzzled. Well, sir, I, he says hesitantly, I, I, I never really gave it much thought. I never really gave it much thought. Gladstone looked at the man and said, young man, the only advice I have for you is to go home, read your Bible and think about eternity. Hebrews 11 points out women and men who throughout, who, who, who thought with eternity in mind. They thought with eternity in mind and the author to the Hebrews points out some people from Genesis. In Genesis, there are four verses on Enoch and he is mentioned as having thought about eternity in Hebrews chapter 11. In Genesis, there are four chapters on Noah. And he is mentioned in Hebrews 11. In Genesis, there are 14 chapters on Abraham. 14 chapters on Abraham. And he's mentioned in Hebrews 11. Joseph was born in Genesis chapter 30. And so he's alive for 40% of the book of Genesis. 
And you could think back, and, and the author to, to the Hebrews could have picked from any event in Joseph's life pointing to his thoughts going forward to eternity and the faith that he demonstrated for us. But when he looks at the life of Joseph, he reaches to the very end of Joseph's life, to the very last event, his death. Because when Joseph died, he had full confidence that the sting of death would be defeated, that his body would be buried. But one day, when the resurrection comes, that with his eyes, he would see his Redeemer. Joseph lived a life with eternal perspective. He carried that eternal perspective when he was put in prison, when he was sold by his brothers, when he was a slave, when he was Lord over all the land. He kept that eternal perspective. He kept his eyes on the hope of Israel. And that hope isn't just some event. That hope is someone and that someone is Jesus. We, we need to go forth and live in light of eternity just as God intended. Let us go out with a knowledge of the hope of Israel, abounding in love and grace. Let us think about life as God intended life on earth to be. In Genesis chapter 1, the tree of life is there. And it's there in eternity. God never, never intended for man to die. But because of the sin in this world, he had to send his son to die for us. If you're here and you don't know that you have eternal life and you want to talk to me about it, come see me after the service. Thank you for listening. I'll pray and then Jeff. I'll turn it over to you. Our Father, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the hope of Israel. And while our lives can consume our thoughts and action, help us to live as Joseph lived, with our eyes fixed on eternal purposes. May our hearts be motivated with eternity in mind as we live our lives with one another, that we would seek to forgive as we have been forgiven that we would be quick to confess our sins and repent, not knowing how much longer we will be here physically. Father, we ask these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.